The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, executive editor for Provoke Media and host for today's episode. So we're going to look at the evolving reality of TechLash. So we here at Provoke Media have had several discussions and feature stories around this, mostly centered around the question, how can technology empower humanity? And also acknowledging that this crisis is no longer acute, right? There's, there's no foreseeable end date. And I'll link to those articles in the show notes because we do reference them in the conversation. Um, so my guest today is Nareet Weiss-Blatt, and she's a PhD and author of TechLash and the Tech Crisis Communication. And she's also a USC uh, research fellow at the Center of Public Relations there. So her book takes sort of an in-depth analysis um, of the evolution of tech journalism and how sort of TechLash emerged, sort of ending this, this long sort of tech press honeymoon, as she calls it. So we're going to explore this and, you know, tech PR and, of course, the political environment that's driving so much of the TechLash conversation. Um, we, we look at some of the big decisions that the Facebook Oversight Board has made recently around COVID and Donald Trump and how you know privacy policies have gotten more and more complicated over the years and, and less and less consumer-friendly. And of course, sort of this complex interplay between the tech companies and their PR teams and the media. So let's tune in to the show now. Welcome to the show, Nareet. Hi, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you know, I, I think a great place to start would be let's examine the word techlash itself, right? Um, I'm wondering if you think that 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 word is still relevant, you know, with what's happening now that you know technology companies are some of the most powerful actors in the world and the drivers of the global economy. Um, is the word techlash too niche or too cute, or does it still apply? I think the definition of the techlash still holds. So in 2008, we started using the word TechLash to describe this widespread negative reaction to the big tech companies uh, and around their growing uh, you know, influence and power. And I think that um, it, the description is still accurate because the backlash that you see today in the media and the political pushback are around those dominant companies and specific sectors like um, social media and uh, they are accusing them of a lot of corporate misdeeds and harms. So it all uh, evolved in this uh, trend of the checklash. And I think it's only getting stronger. Right. And that's really interesting because I think, yeah, even when you talk about the political um, backlash, right? I mean, that it's coming from both sides of the aisle and yes. from, from the global political like, like realm, right? It's not just US. Um, so the, the tech sector, the tech sector is kind of getting it kind of from, from all from all ends. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the tech last definition. You said it was 2018, right? That's when that was the, the actual definition. I mean, Oxford uh, Dictionary, but the actual use of the word we started to use at the end of 16 at mainly in 2017. But the real uh, usage uh, in the media and I'm uh, researching the media was at the end of 2017. You saw more and more articles describe uh, the backlash as the tech class. Right. 
So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about um, an op-ed that you recently wrote for Newsweek. And again, um, you know, as listeners, uh, this will be linked in, in the show notes. Um, you know, you point out that in 2008, Facebook's community standards were one page long and not terribly specific. And today it's a document that's about 50 pages printed. Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that evolution from this 2008, you know, one page or two to where we are today? Yeah, well, um, the internet got bigger and so did the content moderation challenges. I mean, uh, we had a simpler world back then. And when I looked, for example, at the company's uh, peaks of coverage in 2012, uh, in the pre-TechLash years, it was about uh, their product launches that are uh, exciting. It was business reporting. It was not the, uh, you know, tons of scandals that we have today. And the reason that we have uh, tons of scandals today is because we have um, the techlash issues, such as information, disinformation, all the hate speech, all those wars about speech online. And, and when that evolved, the companies evolved as well. So their messaging over the years of the techlash is that we are, uh, we were good, we had good intentions and previous good deeds and we had strict policies but uh, our platform was misused by bad malicious actors. And as the bad actors evolve, we need to evolve as well. So what they're basically saying again and again is that we have a lot more work to do. We know we need to do better. But they also said that they um, have strict policies uh, that are consistent and can be enforced in a consistent way. But they are revisited at any time and they're changing due to new realities. So there cannot be enforced consistently. Right, so that's a good point. And let, so let's, let's take a pause and kind of look at some, some, some examples of this and how some of these standards are applied. Um, as most of our listeners probably know, you know, Facebook's oversight board recently made some big decisions. Um, one of them, of course, was to suspend Donald Trump for two more years on the platform. Um, another one was to no longer remove content from the site that says humans made COVID. So in the context of TechLash, can you kind of walk us through the fallout from decisions like these? So yeah, as we said, uh, the criticism is um, clearly bipartisan. So they, both sides blame the companies, uh, but for totally different reasons. So uh, I think that when the companies try to mitigate all the criticism, they're um, doing their experiments with new uh, enforcement protocols, new policies, and see if uh, that can somehow uh, help them. And the thing is that if the oversight board published last month, Facebook cannot make up the rules as it goes. And what I saw, and speaking to tech executives, they were like, but this is the opposite of what we are supposed to do because of everything that is happening. I mean, we didn't have Donald Trump before. We didn't have COVID-19 before. So our policies years ago could not uh, predict those things that we need to handle today. And even the issues that we need to handle today we have uh, like the opposite arguments about what we are supposed to do. So basically <laughs> they're saying we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, but we're trying something and they're getting backlash from both sides no matter what they're doing anyway. Right, so that's a good point. So um, basically that, that even though Facebook is saying that we need to have standards and we need to be consistent, because the world is changing so quickly that we kind of have to make, you know, there's, there's those that are saying that, that we, we, 
they tech companies need to be need to be more nimble and they need to be more flexible around whatever's you know around the corner. Um, you know, so let's talk about Google then as well because I think in in, in the same Newsweek piece you also mention how Google's um, privacy policies have evolved from you know six hundred words. Um, to where it is today, where it's more than 4,000 words. And I think you, you point out that the Atlantic, there's a piece in which, um, I'll just read the quote directly because it's very good. Um, the policies are always changing and can be revisited at any time. Yet these inconsistent rules will be enforced consistently. It's a mess, end quote. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I mean, are you seeing any, any consistency around how these policies and how these rules are being created? The only consistency I'm seeing is in the press releases and corporate blogs. There you'll find a real copy paste. Because wow. uh, the text from 2017 and 2018, I'm analyzing all of their uh, press releases. It's basically the same messages again and again and again. And this is why I wrote at the end that those of us who chronicle the company's responses live in a tech response groundhog day. Because it's like, but we've said this message like two right. scandals ago and nothing changed, right? Because uh, basically what they're saying is uh, we have the bad actor actors who don't comply with our policies and we immediately remove the wrong wrongdoing and do our best, but we have more work to do. And then another thing has happened. And then you go back and find more horrible things. And then you're saying, but you should have fought this issue like years ago when you said, we know we need to do better and a lot of work to do, but we are years after that still dealing with the same thing. And this is why uh, I think it's like, um, Mark Zuckerberg called it an arm race. Mm. So there's always this battle. And when you look at how the media is covering and then how they respond and how the media is covering the response, it's like this never ending challenging and criticism cycle that is just, um, I don't see a way out for them. Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, I, there, in, in addition to, to your book, um, there's a, a book coming out, I believe later this year called An Ugly Truth. And I believe on the book jacket, they actually have quotes from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg kind of saying the same thing again and again um, about needing to do, do better and, you know, um, apologizing for a misstep. So at some point, I mean, we have to, I mean, I, I think there's been much written about this. So this is the strategy, isn't it? Yeah, and regarding the apology tours that Facebook is most famous about, I call them pseudo apologies in the book. Because when I look at the crisis communication literature, it's not enough to say we're sorry, we deeply apologize for wrongdoing. Um, if the rest of the messaging is trying to avoid responsibility with victimization, uh, it was us versus the bad actors. Uh, we are suffering uh, from the malicious actors and we are uh, the good guys here. And scapegoating, blaming others and giving all of the excuses, then it's not a real apology, right? And this is why it was perceived as not a true apology anyway. Is the perception, you know, is, is banning Donald Trump um, from the platform for two years on Facebook and then of course, you know, you know Twitter um, upholding their ban as well. Are, I mean, from a perception perspective, is this seen as like a turning point as, you know, that they're finally going to kind of crack down on, on some of this or, or no? When I'm looking at turning points, uh, I think the first turning point was the election of Donald Trump. It was caused the tech anyway. And then they needed to handle a lot of uh, mounting criticism regarding issues that they needed to, didn't need to deal with uh, beforehand. And now 
we looked at the 2020 election, there was this fear of how the tech platforms will allow misinformation and disinformation, but I think it blew up in the civil unrest in January 6th. I think it's where uh, the tech platforms uh, were like the villain again, if you look at the framing. Uh, they were again the ones to blame. And when I, you have Biden and his administrations going after them with all those uh, investigations and hearings and the new uh, antitrust uh, bills, it feels like it's really now just getting stronger uh, because you have um, the Democrats uh, fighting the fight, a different fight against big tech than the Republicans. Right. So uh, let, let's talk a little, I wanna go back to what you said about the, it's a copy and paste with the statements. Um, you know, this has strong implications for communications, right? And, um, and message crafting. So, I mean, it's, what's the impact, right? I mean, it seems like if you look at the numbers, right, despite all of these missteps, these platforms aren't getting hurt, right? People are using them and engaging on them and, 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 and there's just such a lifeline for people, right? It, it's connecting the world. And especially in a time when people were so isolated, I mean, they, they, these were a lifeline. So, you know, what's the motivation for communications folks to kind of up the ante and say, hey, we need to be more sincere or we need to have some more action to back some of these statements? Well, I think that the way I'm looking at it is I'm, I'm looking at the crisis response and how they backlash, and I'm analyzing that. Mm -hmm. So the thing that didn't work and backlashed heavily in the media is, as I said, the victimization, uh, right. scapegoating, uh, et cetera. So what I think is missing in their messagings are a uh, few basic things. So one thing that I think created the tension uh, between tech journalists and the tech uh, media, uh, PR people is the secrecy and the limited access. And I think the main call here is for more transparency. I mean, you're a private company, you don't have to reveal everything, but we need to know more in order to uh, regain more of the trust that got lost. But I think uh, if COVID showed us something is, uh, yeah, the users, as you said, uh, heavily rely, uh, it saved their work and other things. Uh, but the narrative, I think we have two narrative here, okay? So first is yes, they saved us. They are the builders of the future. They're innovative and they're important for the economy and for our lives. This is one. The other narrative is of course, the techless narrative, which are they're evil, the villains, the Mark Zuckerberg on the cover is the bad guy, right? And um, they harm society. And I think both narratives um, are in the extremes, like none of them is correct. The reality is somewhere in the middle right. and we need a more um, realistic narrative. Right. And the PR professionals need to push this more realistic. Yeah, we're not all good, everything is perfect, uh, and also not all bad. We have nuances, we have uh, trade-offs, and we need to discuss the trade-offs and educate the people about the trade-offs. I think people would appreciate that. You know, I, I think that's an excellent point that, right, I mean, it's been sort of bifurcated into these two narratives of tech is, you know, the future and the innovators and they're going to save the world. And then also that like they are what's everything that's wrong. And most of us, most consumers, right, exist somewhere in that middle. They don't love everything about tech, about these social media platforms. But on the flip side, they also can't live without them, right? So they're looking for that nuance and that layered um, conversation. So I, I guess on that note, um, I, I wanted to touch back on something that, that you were saying about Traditionally, it's been about secrecy, right? Like that's how tech PR has operated. 
Um, you could argue that, you know, Apple and, and Facebook, right, kind of kind of led the way around that. Um, I, there was a piece in Mother Jones recently about Amazon. Uh, Amazon, and, yeah. Right, and how they're relentlessly asking for corrections was sort of their tactic in terms of kind of bullying people away from um, covering um, some of the darker sides of the company. Um, what practices are you seeing right now are most prevalent? I mean, is it still the secrecy? Is it this asking for corrections? Yes, or? definitely. I think... Um... I mean, historically, the tech companies had in this power relation um, the power to take advantage of the need for tech information. So they had uh, restricted their access only to reporters that they like. And, you know, most visited to their campuses diminished due to NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements. And I think many conversation were on background uh, because it's convenient. So, um, the journalists cannot share or use any of the info gathered, and it's pretty much uh, still a common practice today. Mm. But the roots are in the historical um, power relations between the two groups. And I think access journalism is an untold factor in the, let's say, Cold War between the tech journalists and tech PR professionals. I mean, if you don't let us in, don't be surprised that other voices, critical ones, are the ones featured in the coverage. Right, right. So, I mean, I guess, I, what narratives are you seeing dominating? You know, like, you know, I think we're in a very different place in the world, in, especially in the US than we were a year ago. We have a different administration. We're at a different place in the pandemic. Um, you know, people, offices are opening up. Um, what, what is the tech, like, what are the narratives that are really dominating tech media right now? So I think, Two narratives that are fighting now is if you look on one side, you have, let's say, the New York Times tech journalist. They would continue to produce their criticism and they'll talk about how everything is evil and a threat, then you need, there's a lot to fix, okay? And on the more PR flattering piece side of it, uh, let's say future.com, uh, you see how uh, the tech industry is society's savior, so there's a lot to build. So that's a different narrative. So I think it depends on who you ask. Mm, right. And, and so, you know, I, I guess in terms of what do you think the implications are for TechLash then, you know, as these dueling narratives kind of you take hold? Well, I think we're gonna see more and more of the media being obsessed about the negative because it's literally its job. And people who call for it, to, you know, you're overcorrecting the past and you, be sh you should be more balanced. It won't happen. Right. The balance would come from having, as I said, them focusing on the wrongdoing, which is okay, it's literally their job, and the users, as you said, and the companies like appreciating um, maybe the innovation more, but they have this criticism in mind. So I think having those things together in this play is actually necessary, even though I'm against the extremes ends of it. Uh, I think. Uh, if you look at the ecosystem as a whole, it doesn't allow stagnation because mm. then you have to move, right. which is like, as I said, for either to fix or to build. Right. But, so, you know, and I think about the role that the tech sector is going to play as we reimagine the workplace of the future, right? I mean, the technology mm -hmm. sector has traditionally played this role around innovating the workplace and they've been the first, you know, the, the, the first actors and then it's kind of been this trickle down effect. And now as we're seeing, so, you know, some so many tech companies going fully remote or really embracing, you know, two days a week in the office or, you know, 25 to 30% of the workforce being fully remote. 
What, how do you think that's going to play into the tech lash narrative as the rest of the country kind of looks to technology companies to kind of lead the way around what the workplace of the future might look like? And, and I should caveat I think, that um, this is for information workers. This is not for anyone who's like on a fact, you know, man, manufacturing floor or, you know, in healthcare or some of these other sure. things. Sure. Um, I mentioned future.com. So one of the uh, first articles there by uh, Mark Andreessen was about uh, how tech is saving us and the workplace and uh, making it available for people who are uh, living in suburbia uh, be part of a big tech company. And I live in Cupertino. So my view here is Apple's spaceship. It was built like $4 billion. And what we had a few weeks ago is that some employees said, no, we don't want to go back because we live far away. It's cheaper. Uh, we don't want the traffic. And then some of the backlash was, how dare you? You have this glorious uh, place in here to go to work. But I think deeper than that is that, yes, technology enables them and others that don't live in the expensive Bay Area to be part of the tech ecosystem. And then you have more uh, diversity and your workforce is more inclusive. And I think this is a huge plus for the tech company to say, yeah, we promote exactly that. It's part of our um, value proposition. It's the things that we believe in. So, you know, that, that, one question that I think I want to close on is um, this, this, uh, this other divide you're seeing in the tech sector, right? You're seeing the, the Coinbase's and the base camps of the world take what is being called an apolitical view um, or, or an apolitical workplace culture, right? And of course, there's tons of conversations around the implications of that and what does apolitical mean and who does it benefit? And then, um, and then you have companies like HP that are very much, you know, they're putting a stake in the ground and saying, we want to be, um, you know, the most equitable tech company in the world or one of the most equitable companies in the world, period. Um, can you comment a little bit on this apolitical versus, you know, having a, a point of view on, on some social issues? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm uh, emphasizing in the book that really changed throughout the year is uh, in-house uh, tech workers activism. Mm -hmm. And through the tech last years, we had more and more employees feeling that they can and should speak up about things that they don't like and issues that they didn't spoke about before, specifically not with their name attached. So you have uh, much more whistleblowers now, even though they face uh, retaliation and they feel harmed by going up and open. Uh, but uh, other, I think, workers see that, see the impact, like in the real world, and join the trend. So you're going to see more and more uh, employees uh, raising their voice about things that they don't like because they have more and more power to do so. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. So, well, Nareet, it's always great to have you. Um, I know this is, we, we've had you featured in, in some of our stories and, and, and we've done sessions with you as well. And we will, I'll link to those in the show notes because there's so much more to this conversation. And um, I'm sure we'll have you back at some point to comment more um, on this phenomenon. But thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. It was fun. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast. Brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.